I know as a scripture reader, I should not be dancing, but how can you not with that lovely tune there? Uh, my name is Keith Kovacs. I'm an elder here at uh, St. George's United Church, and it is my uh, privilege to read the scripture this morning, and it's a, it's a passage from the Gospel of Matthew, chapter 10, beginning at verse 34. Do not think that I have come to bring peace to the earth. I have not come to bring peace, but a sword. For I have come to set a man against his father, and a daughter against her mother, and a daughter-in-law against her mother-in-law. And one's foes will be members of one's own household. Whoever loves father or mother more than me is not worthy of me. And whoever loves son or daughter more than me is not worthy of me. And whoever does not take up the cross and follow me is not worthy of me. Those who find their life will lose it, and those who lose their life for my sake will find it. Whoever welcomes you welcomes me, and whoever welcomes me welcomes the one who sent me. Whoever welcomes a prophet in the name of a prophet will receive a prophet's reward. And whoever welcomes a righteous person in the name of a righteous person will receive the reward of the righteous. And whoever gives even a cup of cold water to one of these little ones in the name of a disciple, of a disciple, truly I tell you, none of these will lose their reward. This is the, this, the gospel of Christ. Praise you, Lord Jesus Christ. Before I begin, I just wanted to, to introduce you to Sophie, who was here up with the children. Um, she didn't introduce herself because this was her very first time doing children's time. She's our summer student, and uh, she's flying solo now, and uh, um, we're just uh, glad to have Sophie, Sophie with us. So if you see her floating around, her name is Sophie. You can say, good job, Sophie. <laughs> Let us pray. May the words of my mouth and the meditations of all of our hearts be acceptable in your sight, O God, our rock, our strength, our redeemer. Come, Lord Jesus, we pray. Amen. For I have come, Jesus says, for I have come to set a man against his father and a daughter against her mother and a daughter-in-law against her mother-in-law and one's foes will be members of one's own household. So here we are as a church trying to project the image of being family-friendly. And here Jesus walks in to say here he's here to turn parents, children, and in-laws against each other. Clearly, he wasn't there for our visioning process. You know, way to drop the ball on that one, Jesus. Um, kidding aside, though, Jesus flat out declares that he will be a source not only of conflict, but of division, even among our most intimate, close relationships. Remarkably, you know, he omits husbands and wives, spouses, probably assuming that they don't need much help in that department, <laughs> likely. 
But he does say he divides parents and children, whether in-laws or blood relatives. We may generally associate Christianity with so-called family values and social stability, but Jesus says that with him you can get disharmony rather than harmony. I come, he says, to bring not peace, but a sword, a sword that cuts even the closest family ties. Now, before we talk about what Jesus means, let's make it clear what Jesus doesn't mean when he says, I come to bring a sword. He doesn't mean that what I did when I came home from university, which was uh, after I studied Karl Marx, uh, I made sure my parents knew how wrong they were, uh, about everything from politics to economics, how they were just tools of the man and uh, they needed to get their heads on straight. He doesn't mean demeaning or belittling our parents because we've seen the light and they haven't. And uh, it isn't about swinging around a sword of self-righteousness to wound or cut off our children because they don't measure up to our expectations or the expectations of Scripture, and nor does it mean using the Scripture as a club against your lazy son-in-law either, right? Uh, which, which is in my personal self-interest, uh, actually. Um, but no, nowhere does Jesus in the Scriptures, uh, or nowhere does it show the disciples in acts of punitive aggression, but they are rather the recipients of aggression. When Jesus was betrayed, he told the disciple Peter to put away his sword. It's clear that when Jesus is talking about a sword in this case, it's not one that we have to draw, but it's one that is directed towards us. I don't know if that makes it any better or not, but it doesn't mean that Jesus provokes family strife, but he invites it. Jesus invites conflict. It follows him. Why is that? Well, because Jesus changes people. Jesus changes people. Not just who the disciples were, but their priorities in life and their points of view. The early church caught a lot of heat because following Jesus disrupted their family lives. His disciples, James and John, left the family fishing business behind to join Jesus on the road. We're in the ancient Greek and Roman world. The father was the head of the household cult. Women were baptized into Christ as equals, disregarding what their husbands, in many cases, wanted or their fathers wanted. Some disciples gave away huge inheritances. And through the church, some associated with slaves and others thought to be lesser or inferior when Roman culture said no, that there is a strict hierarchy of human worth. I mean, just the fact that the early church called God Father and all people, sons and daughters, children of God and brothers and sisters, no matter who they were, suggested a relationship that took priority over all the other ones in their lives. Jesus didn't provoke conflict within the family, but he invited it because after Jesus, people just couldn't live in the same way Anymore, He not only changed who they were, he changed their priorities and their points of view in ways that were threatening. How they thought about money, how they thought about authority, the worth and dignity of women and children, 
the dignity of the poor and the broken. Jesus fundamentally changed how they saw the world and lived in it, and this often went against the grain of what their families wanted or expected. I mean, we tend to see Christianity as reactionary, but it was radical. We North Americans have a lot of trouble seeing it as radical because we've been so deeply shaped by 1,500 plus years of Western Christianity. Jesus didn't come to bring peace and harmony to families, he said. He brought a sword. Unless you're willing to take up your cross and follow me, he says, don't bother calling yourself my disciple. If you want to meet, follow me, he says, it could cost you some of the things that you hold most dear, even your flesh and blood. It was radical. It was radical, and because it was so radical, it invited this kind of conflict. It invited conflict because it was disruptive of family life. Now, as I said, we're so shaped by Christianity as a culture, it's hard for us to imagine how radical this idea was, these ideas were. The family that prays together stays together, you know. It's easy to think of it that way. But as our culture gradually loses its Christian framework, the truth is that being a disciple is going to be more and more odd. And it may put us at increasing odds with our culture. And the first place of division, like in Matthew's time, could very well be our families. And I'm not talking about sword-swinging American-style culture wars here at all. Again, it's a way of living and seeing the world that doesn't provoke, but may invite conflict. It could be simple things like choosing to hear God's promises on Sunday over the multitude of other voices or activities for us or our kids. I mean, ironically, the desire to be better parents, to have a stronger family unit, may weaken other family bonds. That's a hard one, and it's costly. But it could also be bigger. It could be the choice to raise our children in the faith against family wishes. It could be how we choose to spend our money. It could be about generosity, about how much money we choose to give away. Choosing jobs that are less lucrative or prestigious because they're more meaningful or have a better impact on the world. It could be about the inherent dignity of every human being, solidarity with family members who are gay, even against other family members who are also Christian. Or it could be about refusing to be caught up in the toxic world of partisan politics. Or it could be about extending grace to those who don't deserve it. The fact is that Jesus changes people. And the way he changes us can be costly. He invites conflict, even in our closest relationships. Jesus brings a cross one we've got to carry if we want to call ourselves his disciples. He comes not to bring peace, but a sword. One that may even puncture our deepest family ties. You know, I thought about just ending the sermon there and sending you out and making you feel just like, okay, I guess I'm going to have to pick a fight with my dad. 
or my kids, or gosh, that sounds depressing. Uh, to be fair to Jesus, though, it's not all doom and gloom. It's never doom and gloom. Jesus calls his message good news, right? The thing is that even Jesus' most difficult teachings contain promises. Here's what he says next. He says, those who will find their life will lose it, he says. Take up your cross, lose your life. And though, he says, and those who lose their life for my sake will find it. What's here is a promise for those who find themselves alienated from their families on account of Jesus or otherwise. For all the hate mail you get from your enemies, Jesus says it'll be worth the one bit of fan mail, the postcard that I send to you. And the place of the life you lose for my sake, Jesus says, I will give you a whole new one in its place. On one hand, Jesus means eternal life. I mean, that's one of the meanings. Even if we die, we're in Christ's keeping. Don't worry if they torture you or kill you, because in the end you will receive what you've lost tenfold. The resurrection of the dead and the life of the world to come, as we say in the creed. Even if your family turns against you, Jesus says, life with me is worth all of it in the end. In fact, all those relationships will be set right in the end. The mother who disowned you, the daughter who doesn't call, the toxic father-in-law that, you ha that had you cut out of the will. In the end, whatever we lose in this life, we'll find again in the next one, and so much more. That's one of the meanings of this phrase. On the other hand, though, he's also talking about this life. This life here and now it's not all just about the end. The Christian life isn't just about doing good and, you know, white-knuckling through suffering and deprivation in the hope of just a good end. Jesus says, I am the resurrection and the life. Life with him may invite conflict, it may come with a cross, but it also comes with an empty tomb. The kind of joy, the kind of hope, the kind of life we find will be worth it with him, Jesus says. Whatever we lose in this life on account of Jesus will gain so much more even if we don't see it right now. It is the life of joy even in the midst of suffering. Even if we don't see it right now. One of those ways, too, that we experience that fullness of life is one of the images that Jesus uses in the New Testament. He uses this image of the family of God. Who is my mother? Jesus asks. And who are my brothers and sisters? Those who do the will of my Father in heaven. Those are my mother and my brothers and my sisters. Not a family based on genetic relation, but a family that has been brought together solely by Jesus himself in his incarnation, life, death, and resurrection. I mean, that's really the only thing that's 
exclude all of us together here this morning. I mean, you wouldn't be, want to be hanging out with me unless you were brought together by Jesus. Most of you, anyway. But this is a family not first gathered together by tribe or nation, by blood, shared politics or ideals or citizenship. Not one of our own choosing, but one based on God's choosing of us. God decided in advance to adopt us into his own family by bringing us to himself through Jesus Christ, says Ephesians chapter 1. As the church, one of the things that God gives us for the loss of our biological family is the family of the church. For all who find themselves alienated, cut off from their families on account of him, Jesus has given them a new family in the church, a family determined not by DNA, but one that comes through the waters of baptism and by the divine glue of the Holy Spirit. God gifts us with the church as a new family, a new kind of family for the family that we have lost. I'm reminded of a recent piece from Christianity Today by a woman named Tori Hope Peterson. Peterson grew up never knowing her father, and she'd been taken from her mother, constantly being shifted around foster homes from an early age. She not only had a sense of abandonment, but also a sense of worthlessness. The experience she had in foster care wasn't any better. It only made her feel less worthy and less wanted. Eventually, though, she moved into her 11th foster home. The foster parents there couldn't fill the space left by her biological family. In fact, that foster family ended up being just as bad, if not worse, than some of the others. And she ended up leaving them on the advice of a pastor's son who she was dating at the time. But this family did take her to church every Sunday. And there she heard the message of God's grace that by adoption, she was a member of the family of God, a sister of Jesus and a child of God. I saw a God, she writes, who didn't shy away from pain but embraced it so others would know love, people who took up their cross for me. And when I looked at the lives of those who most reminded me of Jesus, I could see how they had sacrificed on my behalf. I didn't want to waste their suffering or my own, but I wanted to receive it all as a gift, as a call to love others as they had loved me. This is where she learned an astounding truth. My foster family, she says, my foster family may not have wanted me, but at church, I learned that God wanted me. My foster family didn't want me, but God 
did. We tend to think of church as a building, as a community, communities of faith, as an institution or as a voluntary society, as a school for morality or activist organization. But Jesus has called us together in his presence for so much more. In a culture where family ties can be brittle to non-existent, in a culture where so many of us feel besieged, those of us who are hurt, we are given one another in the church to carry one another's burdens. For those of us who've never known the grace of unconditional love or those of us who've never known love at all, we're given a community that is founded on the love of Christ. For those of us struggling, those of us lost, those of us lonely, the church is one of God's great providential answers to some of our deepest needs. If our family doesn't want us, then God does. And the church does too. Warts and all. Wherever our family has fallen short, whatever family we've lost, whatever family we've never had in the church, by grace, Jesus has given us a whole new one in the form of each other. I mean, and even if you were to just take a look around, you know, from side to side, behind you, in front of you, here today, you'll see the brothers and sisters, the siblings that God has given you, imperfect as they are. In a time of atomized individuals, broken communities, and brittle families, this, my friends, this is the truly radical thing. So much more radical than me spouting off Marxist critical theory to my parents at age 17, 18. This is the truly radical thing, that whatever we may lose in this life, we will find it in Jesus Christ. And where do we find it? Among his people. This is one of the great gifts that Jesus has given us. A gift to share with the world. So may it be so. By God's grace, may it be so. Amen.
please remain standing. 